This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Anne Nicholson Weber, and my guests are Michael Shannon and Guy Van Swearingen. Uh, they are both starring in a production of Sam Shepard's Simpatico, currently running at a Red Orchid Theater, and they are also both founding ensemble members of a Red Orchid Theater, which is currently in its 20th anniversary season. So I thought it would be interesting to talk to them both about the founding of the company and the history of the company and then how that plays into this production of Simpatico. So my maybe the place to start is at the beginning, which would be the founding of the company. And I'm interested in hearing from either of you who you were and what you were after when you decided to start a theater company. Well, um, I'll speak first to that. I... Uh we were uh, some young actors here in Chicago, and uh, I found a play that I uh, was really uh, keen on getting produced, and 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 uh, looked around in the uh, in the want ads and the rentals or whatever in the reader back then, right? And uh, we was trying to find a space, and all the spaces that I looked at were far too expensive for what for our meager. For our meager budget at the time, and so um, I answered an ad in the reader for. There was also spaces available uh-huh. in the reader, and so I answered an ad for a space in the reader, and I came down to uh, Well Street here, fifteen thirty-one Wells, and uh, looked at the space. And at the time, it was just an empty space, and they were storing restaurant equipment here. And I thought, well, this looks like it might work out okay, um, but had no idea what really uh, I was undertaking, you know, um, a little naive and young at the time, right. and decided to just uh, launch into it and wound up building a whole theater and uh, while rehearsing a play and um, putting the play up in, in the course of what was then four months, I think. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, uh, it's a uh, long and uh, too involved story to get into now in terms of the play itself, but the play was met with uh, 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 some warm response, and uh, and so uh, sort of shrugged my shoulders at the end of that and said, "What next?" and uh, and then um, I, uh, I I rang up Mike's bell because well, we I was here. Friends from- uh, yeah, we met in Jane Brody's acting class. There were a lot of great people in that class, uh, great actors, and. Uh, uh, me and Guy took a shine to each other. I actually did the box office for the first show, The Connection. And helped design the poster. The, the poster, I made the programs and whatnot. And yeah, Guy hadn't thought too far ahead. He really knew he wanted <laughs> to do The Connection, but when it closed, he uh, had no idea what to do next. What, had you signed like a long-term lease for this I space? did. I signed a lease for a year. And well, and I figured, you know, I could always get out of it somehow. Uh-huh. It didn't go well. So. And I had, I had actually been a part of a little tiny theater company called The Walking Company that another fellow in the acting class, me and Danny Meyer, had started. And so me and Danny Meyer had done some skits together. We had done the zoo story down in the basement at Cafe Voltaire. Oh, yeah. We had done some mammoth sketches over at the old stage left space. So, you know, we had a little thing going. And uh, and Guy really didn't have something to go up. So I said, hey, we're, uh, we love this drinking in America, this Eric Bogosian piece. It was like a monologue, you know, a series of monologues. And uh, I did that, and Danny directed it. So that got us another few months down the road, and then still <laughs> there was no idea what to do. So we had another company come in, uh, a guest company, into a play called Mean Tears. By Peter Gill. Yeah. 
Yeah. And these were uh, some fellas that I don't even think live in Chicago anymore. I don't believe so. And it, it was really a catch as can kind of thing, you know, yeah. and, the, and the sort of, you know, the evolution of the history. There's a slow matric matriculation, you know, it took a, a, a while. And uh, the whole company is basically founded on mutual attraction and appreciation for each other's talents, uh, skills and, as artists and that. And so it takes time to build that kind of thing. We weren't a bunch of kids coming out of college who all went through a four-year theater program and said, let's stay together and run a theater. Right. It was more of sort of working out in the professional world, seeing who's out there and, and sort of collectively coming together slowly over time. So that's sort of how the theater came about. But so in some, there was no grand vision. You totally backed into this. Is essentially what you yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, eventually we uh, stumbled into uh, an artist named uh, Shira Piven, Oh, yeah. A major talent who brought us a play uh, called Born Guilty that uh, I think really wound up giving the theater some wings and some life. It ran, it's the longest running show in the history of Red Orchid Theater. Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Which season was that? Was that early? That was like in the third, second, uh -huh. third season, somewhere in there. So yeah. you renewed your lease, you kept doing shows, you were kind of a, finding new people just because they would see your work, you would see their work, and... You just did whatever came along for a while, it sounds like. Well, yeah. I mean, whatever came along that was of value and purpose, right, you know, right. in its program, in our program. That you were attracted to, right? Yeah, absolutely. That spoke to sort of what our collective, small but collective body politic was at the time, you know. And looking back, can you see any theme or thread in what you were attracted to and who the people were that you were attracted to? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think we were... Primarily attracted to people who are of, a, of the same ilk. If, uh, but now you have to put I mean, some adjectives on that. Or what was that? Um, uh, people of a, uh, of a certain talent level, of a mm -hmm. certain mindset. Um, we weren't attracted to um, people who just wanted to, you know, be on stage. Say, you know, yeah. we were attracted to people who had forward-thinking ideas and were creative in, in their thought in terms of, you know what's purposeful in our programming mm -hmm. so yeah i mean honestly we're attracted to variety i mean someone who really became after me and guy kind of the third fellow who came on board was larry grimm mm -hmm. Still and on uh the, yeah he he really can be uh much more different i mean the three of us really couldn't be much more different we're not like you know siamese triplets or something we're right. very very different people but <clears throat> And we have even we even have different concerns, but I know for myself, like I was around at the beginning, and then I kind of disappeared for a while, particularly during Born Guilty. I wasn't in that show, and uh, I, there, was, there was no need for me to be around really. And I went off and did other things, and I went to the United Kingdom and did Killer Joe for a while, mm -hmm. and I came back from that. That was a real professional high for me and a really exciting time. And I came back and I collapsed in this really deep depression because I didn't really have anything the to next do. Thing, yeah. I came back to kind of nothing. And Guy at the time was going through a rough time personally as well. And um, we really, that's uh, when we really bonded. I think before that we were friends, uh, but that's when we became like best friends. And we, and we started to share this uh, love of uh, theater of the absurd and Ionesco. We really plunged ourselves into that. Uh, milieu and uh, and that's when we did Victims of Duty and for me that's when I kind of became a red orchider for life you know uh -huh. that's when I got the tattoo 
It was. Uh, oh, you've got a tattoo? No, no, I, it's a metaphor. Uh, it's a, a metaphor. metaphor. Yeah. Tattoo. But uh, from then on, it was like the game's on, you know. And then we and then we started trying to do seasons. But again, it was it was like a real study in variety. I mean, we, I think more than anything, what we like to do is surprise ourselves and surprise our audiences mm -hmm. and challenge ourselves and not be complacent. Uh, one one motto we kind of, I don't know, lived by at least for a little while, I, don't, I, I think we still do, is uh, that we wanted to do theater that uh, comforted the afflicted and afflicted the comforted. Oh, <clears throat> that's, I like that. Yeah. And uh, one other quick note on the tattoos in Red Orchid Theater. There are a few members who have actually gone out and gotten tattoos of orchids on their body, of red orchids on their bodies. and uh, The wild so, ones. Yeah. We're the more moderate. We're the moderate. <laughs> we, we carry the metaphorical tattoos. Right. On us, so, well, but, and uh, I have to ask, where did the name come from? Uh, the name actually comes from a passage in uh, uh, William Burroughs' novel, The Naked Lunch, um, hmm. in which um, the very first play we did was uh, by Jack Gelber called The Connection, and it was a, a what was termed a beat play from mm -hmm. the beat generation, and it, um, and it had jazz in it. Had a, a live jazz quartet on stage as part of the action of the play, and it was about a bunch of sort of uh, heroin addicts waiting for their fix, and... Uh, William Burroughs, as everyone knows, had a storied life with uh, in history in his heroin use. And uh, in that novel, there's a passage in the novel where he describes someone who's shooting up and drawing the blood back into the uh, mm -hmm. eyedropper that they use to push the drugs into their system, drawing the blood back into that eyedropper and it looking like a red orchid. Mm. So it comes strict. It's it's ripped right out of a sentence in that uh -huh. novel. So yeah. Uh -huh. And what did it? What did it? evoke for you Why well we you thought you know we're doing a uh, this play about this Heron. stuff and yeah. this seems apropos so uh -huh. it just sort of fit for again without any great look into the future it just right. fit for the time, the time. And, yeah. and it has a bit of mystery about it and uh, and people do often ask where it comes from so i think that works well you know yeah uh, but i think it wound up being a very coincidentally a very apt name for the theater because uh i don't think i would ever say this out loud himself but i know the, what he's put into running or being a part of the theater for the past 20 years is a lot like a red orchid coming out of his <laughs> system. Um, there's Guy a lot of, not, uh, you know, the proverbial <laughs> uh, blood, sweat, and tears yeah, yeah. Um, have gone in. And, you know, keeping a theater this size alive for this long is... Uh, it's almost impossible, really. I mean, we do have some companions in places like Mary Archie. And Rich Katowski and Guy are like best buds. And oh, I really? think that's one reason yeah. is because they both have have toiled in this labyrinth for a long time. But, you know, usually a theater size either gets bigger or it goes out of business. It's right. very seldom that you can maintain something like this for two decades yeah i mean to sort of keep that level of passion in the work is something that really requires a lot of attention and a lot of love and a lot of focus on detail yeah and i think that you know some of that might get lost in some of the bigger theaters in town here there are um, not that the work isn't fantastic it's really uh, admirable but i feel that the passion that's infused in the work down here is something that makes this theater unique in that sense so. well it stays personal when it's this size it's not an institution 
in the same way. Very right? much so. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very it's still the work you guys. is always very personal, yeah. and, and it's our goal to keep it that way. It's important that it stay personal. So. And how have you survived at this size, which is a, an it's been unsustainable a I business mean, model? <laughs> sorry to talk at the same time, but it's been yeah. a struggle. I mean, it's been a lot of hand to mouth for a lot of years, you know. And sort of, you know, initially we were sort of working, like I say, as sort of catch as can, and and uh, doing plays as we felt inspired to do them to keep that passion in the work is sort of been a slow process as well in building it up to where we can feel we can devote that kind of time energy and attention to three shows a season say yeah. you know yeah. so um so yeah it's just it's it's been that kind of process and and you know there were long stretches where we didn't do work you know we do one a year maybe mm -hmm. you know um, because we couldn't find anything that we felt spoke to us or inspired us so and then how did you pay your rent those years well we should mention the Kermans who own the property, particularly Belle Kerman. She's been a, a patron saint of ours for a very long time. Mm. Um, and she's kept the rent very low. She explains to us that's why she has to rent to, you know, the Subway sandwich shop and the, and the Pinkberry and all that so she can keep our rent nice and low. Yeah. Unfortunately, it means that our theater smells like a Subway sandwich shop. But, it's actually uh, a smell I like, so you do? <laughs> I like that baking bread <laughs> you're, smell. You're the only one. <laughs> I've, and I've grown to loathe it. Do yeah, Pinkberry yeah. doesn't smell bad. There was a stone cold creamery which just smelled like a someone tied a bag of sugar to your head. <laughs> but that that one went away. But We've for seen low rent, you go. can put up with worse, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. But Bell, uh, honestly, Bell uh, deserves a lot of credit for. For that, but Guy also deserves a lot of credit because Guy always made sure the rent was paid, whether it was out of the theater's account or out of his own personal account, or I don't know. Bell always got the rent eventually. Yeah, and I mean we've worked ourselves up into a place where we're not quite operating. Well, we're not operating that way any longer. Not we've got a wonderful board of directors now who mm -hmm. um, help to oversee the theater and, and raise funds for the organization. Um, we've got a, a terrific artistic director and one of our own ensemble members, Kirsten Fitzgerald, and a wonderful managing director, Becky Eaton, and, uh, and a director of development now. Uh, so it's really sort of, you know, um, blossoming out nicely here, you yeah. know, in the last five or so years. Yeah. You know? And they all say, get a bigger space. Let's get a bigger space. And the one remnant that we're holding on to is the space is because it's special to us it's like um it's a sacred for me it's a sacred place mm -hmm. it's it's kind of it's not um fresh necessarily or state-of-the-art but like when i walk in that room and i think about everything that's happened in there not just artistically but personally uh, it's very overwhelming, mm -hmm. and I know when it's gone, that will be hard to fathom mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And the reason they're saying get a bigger space is just because it's more economically viable if you can sell more tickets? Or well, is it's, it it's not that it's economically viable, I'd say. I mean, maybe the opportunity is, is presenting itself, you know, now mm -hmm. that, you know, there's greater sort of, the theater's becoming, uh, come into greater, there's greater success I, for lack of a better word yeah. um but i think it's um the, it's the demand for people to get in to see the right. shows now is right. is increasing to a level where people are sort of pressured to um consider those options mm -hmm. i i feel the same as michael that there is you saw the show i mean yeah. and so there's something magical about being in that space and being that close and watching these 
wonderful artists sort of moving through that space and and you could just almost even feel the air moving with them around yes, you right. you know what i mean and right. you're so close and so we're moving through time and space telling stories in a space that's sort of sacred to us yeah so, yeah that's sort of what it's about um the the neighborhood has changed a lot and you've been here for 20 years how how does it change you or the institution to be in a different kind of neighborhood oh it really stinks i gotta yeah. say the parking <laughs> has just gotten worse and worse and we yeah. hope that anybody who's listening really still you know will take the time to to find the parking around here the parking is the greatest issue to me i think yeah. you know people get frustrated the success of the street is wonderful this street has undergone so many transformations i mean it was a big hippie enclave and hang artist hangout in the 60s and i i don't i can't go further back in history than that from my own recollection, but, uh, and then, you know, there were riots and the storefronts were all smashed in and there was a sort of a, an urban blight on the street for years. When you moved in, what was it through like? Through the seventies and eighties. It was still struggling to find its way. And mm -hmm. now it's just sort of swamped with people and cafes and restaurants and people hanging out and, uh, you know, sort of spending their free time on the street here. So it's really. When these condo um, buildings that went up, that was so weird. I remember watching those go up. The, the big condo buildings down south of us. Yeah. It's very strange. And now these swanky clubs, the, what is it, the benchmark? The benchmark. With and the 25 TVs on sports all the time and the line house. out the door. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah they have like a velvet the rope. There's a, yeah. like a velvet rope, you know, where people line up to get into, you know, a, 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 the benchmark on the street here, you know. Yeah. And, it's a uh, different character. It's very different character. And so we're sort of, you know, sort of, uh, the vanguards that are still here from sort of holding on from the artist's root, roots on this street. You know? Well, us in Old Town Ale House. Yeah. Very That's true. where we go. We yeah. don't go to benchmark. Yeah. We go to Old Town Ale House. That's got a great jazz jukebox. And the mural on the wall there, that'll tell you what this neighborhood used to be like. Sure. Look well, at that mural. I'll go take a look. Yeah. When did you become an equity house? Um, that sort of happened over time. I mean, um, it, you know, when you assemble people who have certain levels of talent, they eventually, you know, get the calling to join the union. And uh, we found ourselves having to either step up to that and, mm -hmm. and uh, be able to work with actors who join the union or to sort of stay at a non-equity level. And there really wasn't much interest in that so much. Uh, not that it's not a great way to, there's some of the best theater in Chicago that goes on at that level. Yeah. Um, but for us, because we wanted to grow and stay together, it was, it was about staying together. Yeah. Uh, so it was sort of just, uh, a milestone on the, on the road of the 20 year. And there's, I think, um, often in a company's development, there's a period where people aren't in their twenties anymore and some of them are having kids and, People start to want more stability and have, you know, homes. And that's really hard to navigate, I think. And I don't know how, if, if you went through that phase, if you see that as being a phase of your development when, you know, people couldn't work for so little or weren't willing anymore and then you that put pressure on yourself to have more money well right? one of the great things about having as many talented people as we have here is that there's always somebody available at some point to be able to do something of quality you know and uh and being at that level they're not just having to subsist wholly here on what red orchid has to offer right. they're working in other places you'll see them you know up at the north light or the steppenwolf or the goodman or what have you so they're mm -hmm. able to sort of make up the differences that way this is a home for us artists <laughs> And, and in that home, we realize sort of the sacrifices we make in working at, at the level we are at. You know? Right. I mean, I do think it's different for me and Guy because Guy has always had the, the stability of his other occupation. 
and, and I, you know, Are, can we can we say what that is? Well, sure. I work. I've worked for the last twenty six years as a Chicago firefighter. I'm now a lieutenant on the Chicago Fire Department, and uh, yeah, it's just a service helping people kind of jobs. So, yeah. Yeah. And I've collected some change recently, so we're both you know pretty stable. But we've had to watch you know people just on this show alone. People are really. It's it's people struggle. You know, it's not an easy it's not an easy life, but. You know, one of the people on the show says, "This is, this is where I come to have fun." Like, yeah, yeah. my life is very difficult, but uh, I always feel good when I walk in here and do the show. So, uh, and so I feel for the, like, I, sometimes I feel bad that I'm not like struggling in that way that I, you know, don't have to worry about those things. But, well, you know, what should I do? <laughs> throw throw all my money in the garbage or something. I don't no, know better if more people could be comfortable than less yeah. people be comfortable. So. Exactly. Well, well and one of the nice things the theater is is able to provide is the healthcare weeks, and so people have health insurance and that sort of thing too. You know, um, right. which is very important in this yeah. you know in today's world. You know, so yeah, I mean, it's a it's a very tough life. I know it's a very tough life, and it kind of has to be the only thing you can bear to do in order to make it worth. Well, it. there was a period. There was a period, and you know, if you talk about the historical periods of the theater, you know, starting with the victims of duty, like I said, mm -hmm. the Ionesco play, where me and Guy, this is what we did. I mean, period. We didn't do anything else. We mm -hmm. would wake up in the morning, go to Home Depot, buy drywall, spend all day building the set, rehearse at night, clean the theater, write the press releases, make the programs, hang up posters, do tech do shows i mean strike shows. weeks would go right. by where we hardly left the you know there was nothing else that we did it's just all we did guy would buy me sandwiches i'd sleep on the floor at his apartment and uh -huh. it was just like uh it was like a black hole we just uh -huh. kind of and and we came out the other end of that you know so we have like like we won't do that anymore like i won't do that anymore mm-hmm I just can't. I, mm -hmm. did, I did it, and it meant a lot to me, and it will never happen again. I think developmentally, they're just you, you can't go back to that at past a certain age. Just, well, and you have to mature, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and evolve. I mean, it's sort of, you know, a mandate, you know, being here, evolution. Yeah. You yeah. Know? yeah so yeah. Um, it's learning experience, you know. So. Well, so, Michael, you referred to the fact that you've recently had um, some real success in Hollywood, which brings with it money and mm. celebrity and mm. very different, I think, kinds of work and a different culture. And I'm interested what of all that comes into your life as part of this ensemble. How does it, how does it affect you when you come back? How does it affect the company? Just anything that's relevant about that, if anything. Well, it's, you know, it's really complicated. I mean, there's my perception of it, and then there's other people's perception of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a rule I try to live by, which I just don't buy into any of the hoopla. Like, I just yeah. try to walk out the door like I walked out the door five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago. Other people manifest things, you know. I try to be appreciative, but I don't. I don't let it happen for too long. You know, mm -hmm. it's thank you, 
thanks. I'm glad you saw Eight Mile. Thank you. Bye bye. You yeah, know? yeah. That's what I've been trying to do, and it's been going on for you. I mean, there's. It's been a very slow thing. Like it's actually been going on for a long time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I started my film career right around the same time this theater started, and uh, I've been going back and forth. You know, I lived in L.A. At the turn of the century, from 99 to 2001, I was in L.A. Uh, doing uh, big, spectacular movies. <laughs> and um, and then, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the late summer of 2001, I had, like, this meltdown. And they were going to do Bug at Red Orchid without me. And I said, no. You know, and I felt really bad because it... Um, they come down to two very good actors that were going to play Peter and... And Dexter was calling me, and guy was calling me, like, oh, it should be this guy, that guy, this guy, that guy. And I was at, like, the Four Seasons in Hawaii for the Pearl Harbor premiere. And I was on the phone. I was like, I can't take this anymore. I'm coming back. I just tell them both sorry. I'm sorry they auditioned so many times, but I'm coming back. They're like, are you sure? Are you, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So I came back and slept on the floor and did bug. And was the meltdown before? Was the meltdown about the fact that you couldn't be part of? I bug, couldn't or was stand it the fact else? that they were going to do bug without me. It yeah. just drove me crazy. Another, yeah. and so I left. Like you know, I'd been doing like Jerry Bruckheimer movies and finally making like absurd amounts of money, and then I just couldn't take it, so I left. So I mean, and I think everyone in the company knows me very well, and they know that that's what I'm like. And at the end of the day that I'd rather be here doing this than mm-hmm. anywhere else. And I, I can I speak to the question, too? Because this yes. question came up. Michael was interviewed, like, in the last week by Phil Ponce for Chicago Tonight on Channel 11. Yeah. And the question came up, and I think Phil is sort of an investigative reporter, you know? Mm. And um, he asked questions about sort of, like, what is how is Michael's success resonated with the rest of the group here? Mm-hmm. And, I and you know, Michael's speaking from his, his side, and I don't think he was able to hear what I might have to say about that. And it's that it's this. We're all very happy and proud of Michael and his success, and nothing more, nothing less than that. Mm-hmm. Our friendships are, that have been forged are still those same friendships. It doesn't change the, the psyche of sort of the group or what have you. There's no dirt there to be found. Right, you know, we're right. just really happy. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I the way I would picture it is it's this buzz on the outside. I mean, these relationships are so established. Who you are together goes so far back. That something mm. like this isn't going to get into the core of it, but the world treats it differently, treats you differently because of it. I think, right? I mean, sure, it does. And Michael and still gets up and walks out his door every day as if that's not happening, right? You know, and you just so have to sort of put blinders on. Yeah, yeah I mean, sometimes <clears throat> I don't know. It's not. It's not. It's not like it's not that hard to deal with. It's only hard to deal with when like people get mad at you. Why do but, people get mad at you for doing other things? I don't coming know. Like, back uh, here, like last night, there was some guy. You know, I was hanging out with Mierica, who's in the show. Right. She plays Cecilia. And her uh, Aunt Carla had come up from Cincinnati, and her, her nephew was there. And it was real. we were having a real nice chat. We were over at Old Town, and some guy walks up, and, he's, and he just wants to talk. You know, and he's like, you, I hated you in Man of Steel. But oh, I, nice. I hear you, my friend says you're in Boardwalk, but I've never seen it. But uh, so you're from Lexington. Do you like the Wildcats? Because I'm a Gators fan. And I just said, man, 
That's three strikes. You, this, is, <laughs> this is officially an uninteresting conversation. It's time for you to go away. Uh-huh. And he got really upset. Uh-huh. I said, what? I'm just supposed to talk to you about the gators? Right. I don't give a shit about the gators or the wildcats. I don't care. Right. Go away. People think they have a right to a relationship because you're yeah. famous. And that's a weird thing. That's annoying. Yeah, yeah. I don't mind someone saying, hey, I really appreciate Kangaroo Jack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you thank you uh-huh. i worked really hard on that well <clears throat> we're almost out of time and we haven't talked at all about um simpatico which is a a really wonderful show just thank so you. fascinating to watch and it's hard not to speculate about how your history is to individual people and the history of the company somehow feeds into a production like this. It is about a long-standing relationship with, you know, d- long-ago betrayals and continuing loyalties and how how two men in that kind of relationship, mm, I don't know what the right word is, there's this back and forth to it that's fascinating. Well, yeah, can it hold, you know? Can a, can a relationship like that hold? Yeah, yeah. Do people... Can really can people really? I, I I find I'm often in my work returning to the idea of human intimacy. Like, mm-hmm. can it sustain itself? Is it is it real? Is it not real? Yeah. Do people really ever know each other, or is it just a facade? You know. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so yeah, and it's fascinating. You know, we yeah, that's one of the main things to draw for us was to try and capitalize on our relationship our actual human relationship but it's it's funny because it's it's not as um it's not as much of a match as you think it is yeah because the fact of the matter is 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 that me and guy really aren't much like Vinny and carter at all right and you know originally i was going to play Vinny and guy was going to play carter and then we were sitting around i was like well, what if i played carter and you played Vinny? and then we were like well what if we switched back and forth and mm-hmm. so we, you know, we just read a, a scene a couple of different ways. And what I realized that day is that, like, ultimately it didn't even really kind of matter. Like, mm-hmm. like either way, we were both going to have to, even though we thought we were drawing on something that was at, right at our fingertips, we were going to have to do some work to to go to where these characters were. Because right. they're not, you know... We're kind of a combination. We're both kind of a combination of both characters. Yeah. That's, I guess, what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So you had, each of you had something in you. For Guy's got a lot of Carter in him. He's also got a lot of Vinny in him. Uh-huh. Mike's got, got a lot of Vinny in him. He's also got a lot of Carter in him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, so there is that. And, you know, and, you know, it is, it was the, the idea to do the play. There was, you know, there is this history in the story of the play. And there is the history that Mike and I share, you know, and as uh, friends and working together and all of that sort of thing, being involved in deals, getting the theater shows, things, whatever. Yeah. It's all that sort of inner sort of working where Michael and I have a lot of rich history. Right. And the play has to do with deals and business and guys you know doing things to each other you know um that michael and i maybe have never really done to each other or what have you you know in terms of dirty dealing you know which is what plays are kind of about but not about the best days of our lives um but what michael and i do have is sort of you know uh a personal relationship that can help to sort of feed the storytelling of the play which is really what attracted us to it. So. Well, what actors usually say to me who have worked a lot together is there's this 
incredible um, shorthand you have when you're doing any show, right? That you just have a way of working. You don't need to build the trust. You, you're already steps ahead when you start rehearsal. But it sounds like you are saying a, a little more than that. It's not just that you've worked together. It's that you've lived and struggled and, you know, st strategized and actually done some of the actions that these guys do together. Is that right? Is that what you were saying? Well, we were partners. You know, there's, yeah, there's yeah. a lot of talk in this play about partners. Yeah. And I, Carter, at one point, talks about the partnership that existed between us. Yeah. And that, to me, is reminiscent of those days I was talking about earlier where me and Guy were kind of inseparable. Yeah. I mean, we were, From morning we were inseparable. Morning. And it's not <laughs> like that anymore, you know. Right. But what it what it is like is that we're still really good friends. So, yeah, right. Which is maybe not how the maybe maybe the play does wind up that they still stay friends. You have to come see it, you know, yeah. um, to make up your own mind. But um, I'm an optimist, so I thought they did. But. <laughs> <laughs> they made up. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me to talk about it. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks, yeah, thank I appreciate you. it.